It never occurred to me that my history of fetishistic cross-sessioning was compatible with the identity of a trans woman. You're a diaper-wearing, age-play fetishistic walking in the mall sucking on a baby bottle. Should, you know, a fully intact male like Leah Thomas be able to walk into a single-sex um, changing room and just get naked because there's a sort of like idea in gender identity theory that, you know, if you have a certain gender identity, you are more or less for all intents and purposes, like perfectly equivalent to a female. Why don't, why don't males get their own space for breastfeeding? It is okay to repress like a desire. Does it cause you distress? Welcome Ray to the Jack Tool podcast. You are my third guest. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our interview. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, thanks for having having me on. Um, you know, looking forward to the conversation. So, um, yeah, yeah. Where where should we start? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been following you on YouTube as well. And for anyone watching, I'll put Ray's details in the description. Please go check him out. Um, find your videos super interesting. You know, you you approach them from a very scientific angle, and the whole topic of the, you know, transgender typology and autogynophilia really fascinates me. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, you're a detransition male, right? So if you kind of like to introduce yourself and, and explain a little bit about that. Sure. So, <laughs> um, when I was 28 years old, I transitioned, I adopted the identity of, um, a trans woman, essentially that, kind of eventually evolved into, you know, a trans feminine, um, I, I identity, but you know, the origin of all that, um, uh, oh, and I should say that that whole period of my life lasted eight years and I took hormones, didn't have any surgeries or anything. Um, but I was taking hormones for eight years and then last summer I detransitioned, but the sort of impetus, sort of looking back on sort of my whole life story, like what what brought me to that point when I was 28 years old and I decided like, hey, this is something I want to do. Um, I now understand myself to having AGP, autogynophilia, which, you know, depending on how people classify this or talk about it, it is essentially, um, you know, a paraphilia. It's a, you know, some people call it a fetish. Um, and that started when I was very young and, um, there's different types of AGP. So for some people it's more focused on, um, you know, uh, the anatomy. So, um, or yeah. f for some it's about clothing for me, it was mostly about the clothing aspect. Um, mm. so when I was very, very young, even prior to puberty, you know, I was very fascinated by women's clothing, um, and, you know, the, the reasons why that happened, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's partly innate, partly environmental, you know, kind of the nature and nurture kind of working together. I don't really know the, the true origin, but nevertheless, you know, I had this fascination. It was really fetishistic. It was particularly focused on like one particular type of clothing when I was younger, which was hosiery. Um, and then okay. that kind of like es escalated as I got older and then high school, it kind of like, you know, got more more and more elaborate. But for those that don't know, autogynophilia auto, auto, auto is essentially like um, arousal at the thought of oneself as a woman. And that takes on, you know, different characteristics. Like you can be aroused at the thought of yourself having female anatomy or, you know, wearing women's clothing or a combination of multiple factors. And then, you know, for many, many years, I just identified as a cross-dresser. Um, and then when I was 28, I, uh, my, my wife left me for 
reasons unrelated to, um, you know, uh, the gender stuff. Um, I kind of suppressed my gender feelings during my marriage for, for the sake of the marriage. But once Mm -hmm. that marriage fell apart, um, I was in grad school. I had no other responsibilities or anything. So I was just like, Hey, Hey, (laughs) you know, let's explore this gender thing. And, you know, I kind of, you know, cross-dressed more and more and more, which led to kind of full-time cross-dressing. And then I was in therapy at the time. And this was like 2015. It was the height of the trans tipping point. And so Kate, Caitlyn mm-hmm. Jenner was big in the news. Like Laverne Cox was big in the news. Like trans women were like a big social thing. And, um, you know, the, the, the therapist sort of said like, hey, you should watch Caitlyn Jenner's story because, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it reminds me of your cross-dressing and stuff. And it never occurred to me that my history of fetishistic cross-dressing was compatible with the identity of a trans woman, but... You know, um, yeah. You know, I started doing research on Reddit, and it turns out that a lot of trans women uh, share similar um, life histories, but they'll just—it's uh, very common in the community to ask questions like, "Is it just a fetish?" And the answer is always, "No, it's not just a fetish. Like, you're really just a woman, and these, you know, fetishistic aspects are." basically you know your womanhood is there all along and then you're just repressing that and the only outlet is through your sexuality but once you sort of like adopt a trans identity then the fetish stuff goes away um and then it's like proof that you're really trans or something like this so uh that that was kind of like the long and short of it of like uh, there's way more i can go into it but that's kind of just like uh, a brief, brief introduction to agp and like what was the impetus but Obviously, this is very controversial because most trans people consider autogynophilia to be a pseudoscientific, transphobic, debunked, you know, theory that's made up by, you know, um, basically terrible old white men who don't know what they're talking about and just hate trans people. (laughs) I've I've heard the same. Um, Well, thanks so much for sharing that. Personally, I, I really do find this subject fascinating. And I think maybe one of the reasons is because it is it's it's prevalent you know it's it's not it's rare of course but it's not so rare that you know you'll meet someone in a blue moon with it you know it's actually happening among us and society by and large just are not aware of this i feel it's really goes under the radar and i feel like when we talk about trans rights and trans people there would be very few you know average you know non-lgbt people or even lgbt people who know about this um so i want to come back to that but i guess going back to the start I think people, I notice online, people can be very hostile about AGP, judgmental, especially, you know, the gender critical feminists and that kind of stuff. But I guess imagining what young boys go through and um, am I right in saying that it kind of came to light at puberty, adolescence? I mean, I think there was, um, what I would say is there was a sort of like seed, there was sort of like a disposition that was there prior to puberty, but it didn't really yeah. fully manifest. It didn't sort of take on its full, you know, um, development um, until mm. I was, you know, went through puberty. Um, and then, you know, once the testosterone is like surging through your body, once you become yeah. more sexual. And I also think this is not talked about a lot in the trans community, but the influence of pornography 
on the development of these things, which is, I think, under-talked about in the discourse. Um, but I do think that played a factor insofar as, you know, I eventually, I think it was in high school, I stumbled upon um, porno pornography about trans women. And that sort of like kicked off a um, lifelong fascination. And so, um, I mean, I sort of, you know, I don't, I don't watch, I don't watch, I, I've kind of given up pornography but you know that that was something that like persisted uh for a long time and i think it played a role in the development of this in terms of like escalating it because yeah the way adgp operates is you sort of are it, it's a form of heterosexuality that's inverted inward so you're attracted to women you're attracted to femininity but you're you're constantly asking this question like am i attracted to you or do i want to be you Whereas with the trans porn thing, there's another form of it that is not just attraction to females and wanting to be a female, but attraction to trans women in a fetishistic way and wanting to be a trans woman. So I think this explains the sort of difference between the some trans women are really driven to get bottom surgery because the thing they want to be is a female. And there's other trans people like myself who the thing that we wanted to be was trans women, you know, who are preoperative. And that sort of, you know, led to the fact that I never had a desire for bottom surgery. Right. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that has a specific form. So there are some men who have a fetishistic attraction to trans women. And the term yeah. for that is gynoandromorphophilia, which is like attraction to that specific morphology of basically, you know, a wo a woman's body uh, with feminine characteristics, but you have male genitals. And then yeah. the sort of autogynophilic auto version of that is like autogynoandromorphophilia. So you like, you want to be that thing that you're attracted to. So it's, it's mm. sort of like an inversion of your sexuality, essentially. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I was going to come to that point because I've heard of gynandromorphophilia, if I'm, if I'm saying it right. Do you think these two things I, are I, I just call it GAMP. Like, it's, it's like yeah. a mouthful. It's like Agent GAMP, and, GAMP yeah. and, a, and a GAMP. yeah. <laughs> um, like, are these two things on some sort of a spectrum? You know, if you have GAMP, are you more likely to be AGP or vice versa? So uh, Phil Illy, who is an AGP man, um, I'm not sure... You you probably seen some of his work, right? We've spoken um, actually. I think. I, I think oh I'm, yeah. Okay. Well, oh, great. Um, yeah. Um, so it, it, I I have his book, which I really recommend as far as like the scientific yeah, literature on 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 this topic. And he he looks at some research that shows that if you are GAMP, you are more likely to be AGP as well. So it's kind of like the flip side of the coin. Not all GAMPs are AGP, but if you are GAMP, you have a higher likelihood of being AGP, which is why it's very common. Tr tr trans women report this experience all the time. It's like um, they'll sort of like find a um, quote unquote straight man who is into them and willing to date them and then like, six months into dating them they transition <laughs> because they are sort of attracted to the trans women via the fetish or the of gamp 
but it's really just like a way to get closer to the thing that they want to be themselves, but they're just repressing that until they finally sort of like get inspired. That I mean, it happened to me, like when I was like uh, identifying as trans, I like dated a guy and yeah, um, he eventually went on to become a she. So, uh, oh, right. I see. So, so, so you were, you were already a trans woman and you dated a guy who was gynandromorphophilic i would assume so yeah, yeah that's my guess like um and then you know something i always wonder is you you know you say agp people are attracted to women and attracted to themselves being a woman but did you also feel attraction towards men or is it more this sort of meta you know how they make you it was feel? meta it was very meta so growing up, I was pretty much exclusively attracted to girls and women. Like I didn't really have um, any sort of bi curiosity or anything like this. Um, but then once right. I transitioned, um, it, uh, you know, I, I, I developed a sort of meta uh, like attraction. Um, and I, I saw this many times where there there would be like, you know, trans women in, you know, my local support group communities who, you know, been like married, three kids, you know, like been like, you know, heterosexual identified for like 50 years. And then they like, like transition. That's the classic, and, um, example, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. It's like and then, then they just their wives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. I'll get to that later with like my, my own wife, because we actually met while I was transitioned, um, okay. my like current wife, and then I detransitioned. So I kind of like trans widowed in the reverse direction. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like, um, but it, anyway, like these, these trans women who had basically, you know, been straight identified for their entire lives as men, they suddenly transitioned and now they're all sudden boy crazy. And, um, and, and so there's this, there's this idea that like somehow estrogen can change your sexual orientation, which I just don't right. believe. I think it really is one of the, it's like the pseudo bisexuality where you're using, you're using the stereotypes around women being boy crazy to validate your womanhood because that is the preeminent thing that's important to the AGP is to validate the conception of yourself as a woman at all costs, no matter what. And so some, mm -hmm. and there's kind of like some sort of like a, a conception that, um, you know, being boy crazy, like, um, is like proof positive of your true womanhood or something like this. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, while it is that meta attraction, like, do you feel anything for their physicality? I mean, if, if, it, if I was imagining it, you know, do you, do they gross you out at all? Like the guys or like, sorry to put it um, so bluntly, but it's just, it's so hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> so if I, way if I sleep with a girl, um, you know, even if that made me feel kind of more macho, you know, I think I would be quite grossed out. <laughs> right. So th this is how powerful AGP is because, um, you know, I, I did have experiences with men sort of, um, while I transitioned and, um, it, it was sort of like, um, it, it, it's hard to explain, but like, that's sort of like, you know, 
gay porn never did it for me. Like the the sort of like pure masculine image of like a masculine man with like facial hair. Like I, I was always more into like feminine men, which is I think explains why I was like into trans women who you know kind of fit that right. um, yeah that like that category. But the you know like um, you know stubble and kissing someone with stubble like was sort of like a turnoff for me. Okay. Um, but these sort of like other aspects of like taking the submissive role was like, mm -hmm. you know, it was like very, um, I don't know, <laughs> like, like, uh, it was like a fantasy, I guess that, you know, I, you know, played out, but for the most part, you know, most of my dating experience when I was trans was with either, um, you know, by, um, women or with trans women um mm. also dated a gold star lesbian at one point which was interesting because i suspected that she was auto androphilic and because uh, right. phil illy talks about this interesting hypothesis that uh, he thinks that agps are attracted to um feminine uh or a AGPs are attracted to feminine men, I think, and um, auto and autoandrophiles are attracted to. It, it's like it's like you're kind of attracted to the opposite version of yourself. As I yeah. can't, I'm like totally and butchering you just explain that. Autoandrophilia for it's basically the the inverse of AGP. Um, it's like females who sort of have a. Um, arousal at the thought of being men but uh it's it's a contested term it's a contested concept because some people will say that agp is unique to the male brain because right. the male brain is has a you know it, it's, it's sort of more it's m much more common in males to have paraphilias and fetishes whereas the female brain yeah. Just it's 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 extremely rare for females to have that kind of like male typical paraphilic obsession. Um yeah. but I know Phil Illy has compiled a, you know, range of evidence. And even if autoandrophilia is not the same as autogynophilia, they don't have the exact same presentation. Phil Illy thinks that there's enough sort of like broader similarity is that they're sort of like the inverse of each other is just that the female version of it doesn't take on an explicitly fetishistic component it's more like a sort of romantic idealization as okay. opposed to a fetishistic idealization mm. i have heard it described differently in the sense of agp or you know you're attracted to yourself being a woman but then Although androphilia, I keep tripping up over myself with all these words, but uh, that it's, I've heard it described more as women who are attracted to the idea of having gay sex. Yes, I think that is part of that is these sort of, and Phil sort of knows this, this phenomenon better than, than I do. But, but yeah, I think there's sort of like, a sort of um, envy of the, um, you know, the sort of gay relationship. But I, I, I think right. it might be, I, I've heard people say it's, it's slightly different than like the fetishistic component because to some extent, 
being young um, girls, being young females, they're sort of, you know, uh, indoctrinated via misogynic, misogynistic conceptions of relationships where the males are always in a more powerful relationship. So they sort of, you know, want to escape from misogyny by imagining being in a relationship where they're on the equal, like two males are like equal in the relationship. So it's a way to sort of escape from the stereotypes around, you know, sort of being in a traditionally hierarchical relationship where the male is like the dominant one and the female is like plays the subservient role. So yeah. it's sort of a desire to, to equalize that. And that becomes like a romantic idealization essentially. Yeah. I mean, it must sound so whack to anyone listening who's just never heard of this stuff, but, <laughs> but instinct is like, I mean, I, I, I say that in good faith, of course, but, um, it's also what, what you just described. It's like AGP is the reverse. Cause I have seen testimonies from people, you know, trans women who have transitioned and they talk about, you know, um, having this propensity towards sort of misogyny towards themselves or like being abused, kind of, you know, debased. So it's almost like the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that is, um, so if you watch sissy porn, which is a yeah. category of, you know, pornography that is very common and there is a sissy to trans pipeline for sure. And even though people won't admit this because it's very taboo to talk about, but the, um, you know, the sort of, um, the, the, fetishization of being degraded by, you know, alpha males is a very common motif um, in this style of pornography. And people say like, oh, that's just for sissies. However, like um, all these categories of pornography are blended together now. So there's like trans porn, there's femboy porn, there's sissy porn. There's cross-dresser porn, and they're all sort of blended together into sort of an amorphous, fuzzy category. And I wouldn't say there's a clear boundary between these things. And superficially, right. they look all the same because you have, you know, femboy porn stars on hormones. And these sort of, like, taking hormones and transitioning becomes a fetish in and of itself. Like, the, the transition process itself becomes part of the fetish because... It sort of is the ultimate um, emasculation of your maleness to go on the hormones. And so people can fetishize taking hormones. And then I think what often happens is once you actually go on the hormones and once you actually start living this lifestyle full time, it becomes normalized and the hormones kill your, your, your testosterone, which kills your libido. So now you sort of don't have that libidinal energy flowing through you. So it sort of all becomes normalized and the sort of fetishistic aspect goes away and your sort of trans identity as a sort of like more of an idea um, becomes right. dominant. And th this is what a lot of trans women will say. It's like, well... AGP can't be correct because even if, you know, when I first started, I had a euphoria boner. Once I started hormones and once I took my trans identity on, once I started transition, like I, I, I never get aroused it, 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 it anymore. But that's compatible yeah. with AGP because AGP is a theory of the origins of the transition process. Right. 
Um, and it's not a theory that says the fetishistic arousal is 100% activated throughout the whole lifetime of being a trans really? woman. And the other key problem with this theory is it doesn't explain the homosexual transsexual type who never experiences any of this fetishistic aspect at all. So if they say like, oh, we're just, you know, women and, you know, we're just being women and like regular women, you know, have these sexual fantasies that's just normal for women to have. Well, the homosexual variant, you know, AKA trans women who have been exclusively attracted to men their whole lives, they don't experience any of this stuff. So yeah. it doesn't explain why there's a difference based on what's your, what's your sexuality relative to your birth sex. And that is what the key theory is, that there's a difference between these two types. There's the types of trans women who have always been attracted to men, and then there's everyone else, which includes yeah. asexuals, bisexuals, and exclusive heterosexuals. And so the mm -hmm. sort of like saying like, oh, well, you know, this is just normal stuff for, you know, women to experience that like, can't explain why the homosexual types never experience this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's it's wild how different the two are because, you know, if I had to bet my best theory on why trans women of the homosexual variety transition, it's like, you know, when you're gay, like I am, lots of us are gender non-conforming to a certain degree, right? And if a man is so hyper-feminized, there's sort of no way that it's very difficult for him to walk through life and walk through society without going into issues. And I mean, facing so much discrimination and feeling so... It's, it's difficult when when you're a man, but you can't see any other men that you can actually see yourself in. Like, there's no one to empathize with you or no one you can look up to to say, oh, that's like me. But instead, you know, you can definitely find that in women. So it's like all of that um, can lead to this dysphoric, you know, very unhappy feeling about your body and that you're not in the right place. I mean, that would be my best kind of guess, even though I'm not of any sort of scientific background, but I sort of feel like the homosexual variety is almost, you know, very much, very heavily dependent on society and how society deals with gender nonconformity. Whereas, you know, your type or the AGP type is, you could almost look at it as more biological. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not homosexual, so I can't put myself in the, in that mind. So you're much, you know, better able to speak, but that totally makes sense in terms of like, you know, there's sort of these natural, there's a natural femininity that is not like learned. Whereas the AGP type, yeah. at least in my own experience, I'll tell you like when I first, so I, I wasn't naturally overly feminine as a young child. I was never made fun of as a sissy. I was, you know, kind of a, typical rough and tumble boy growing up that, you know, you would have never thought I was like an effeminate child um, as like a young boy. Whereas I think the homosexual type is that sort of like very effeminate boy that's mm -hmm. made fun of for being a sissy. Mm -hmm. Whereas the AGP, I think a lot of the femininity is sort of, it, it doesn't come out of an innate of it doesn't come out of an innate sense of being effeminate it comes out of like a sort of like you learn it through observation so when i started my transition i sort of self-consciously started a process of observing and imitating femininity such that you know i would sort of observe how 
you know, stereotyped, you know, versions of femininity, like how males and females sort of act differently in stereotyped forms. And then I like learned to imitate that essentially. And I imitated it well enough that it eventually sort of became, you know, more natural to me, for example, with like speaking. So, you know, trans, trans women have to train their voice. Well, uh, yeah. obviously some trans women, AGPs never train their voice and they kind of like take on a more typical male monotone, deep voice intonation, but you can train to like imitate, like, you know, more stereotypical upswing. And it's, it becomes a very like, you know, I, I sort of learned and studied it. So it didn't come naturally to me. I yeah. studied it, <laughs> which I think is the key difference between the homosexual type and the AGP type. And, and I think I, I don't want to be overly binary with this distinction because I think there are some AGPs, um, because particularly now you're starting to see more younger AGPs transition. Um, mm. I think this is partly due to the prevalence of like trans culture on the internet, femboy culture, you know, um, trans culture, like it, it, it's, you know, it's very prevalent on Reddit and, you know, these yeah. di discord communities and you sort of, so I think that sort of influence can happen at a, at a younger age and it sort of can maybe be part of like a more normal socialization process. Um, but I do think right. there is a difference because when you really know like a true homosexual type there, it's like, it's like night and day. You can kind of always tell in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And before, before I knew about all this, I wouldn't have, I mean, now when I look at the media and examples of trans women, I, I find it quite obvious personally, um, for, for many of them, I guess, w w would you agree with that? I mean, when you look at well-known trans people. <sighs> trans actresses or you know youtubers just kind of anyone in the public sphere do you get a sense of maybe which which variety you're looking at <laughs> it, i think it's one of the things where once you see it you can't unsee it um and yeah. um like and and yeah there are exceptions there are always going to be exceptions and and that's what people say like being critical of the typology it's like well Note, like you, you, you can't categorize millions of people into one of two boxes. And it's like, sure, gr granting that point, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. There's always going to be, you know, some fuzzy boundaries, you know. But generally speaking, um, it you, you, you can make a pretty broad sweeping generalization and have it hold true in most cases. And I think... This is particularly true in terms of um, not just, um, you know, the heterosexuality, but the sort of, uh, you know, forms of behaviors and interest and proclivities that are typical of the homosexual type versus the um, the the a, the AGBT. I think, like for example, the ho the ho the ho homosexual type might be more interested in like you know, makeup and cosmetology and like beauty and the sort of like, you know, being a beauty influencer and, you know, the sort of, um, you know, m more traditional, like, you know, drag queen culture sort of thing. Whereas like you, your sort of st classic stereotype of the, um, AGP type is like the computer programmer who's on Reddit and like, you know, has nerdy Star Trek interest or something. So, you know, that, 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 that's obviously like a generalization, but I think you kind of see, 
differences and also, you know, which are the type that is more prone to, um, uh, you know, sex work as survival. You know, that's like another thing you see in the community that sort of differentiate where the AGP type, you know, are, I think, less likely to do that. Um, mm. Yeah. And I think it's something I struggle to get my head around, and I, I think many people would, is sometimes it's described as a, as a fetish, sometimes as a sexual orientation. So in my mind, those two things are so different. And, you know, if it is a fetish, my understanding of a fetish would be, you know, something you enjoy sexually, but you don't need to live as that fetish. You know, you're not kind of moving through the world, like always kind of that fetish being a part of you. Um, at least with myself, like, you know, there's never been an aspect of me walking into the world kind of retaining part of my sexual interest. At least I, I hope not. I don't think there is. So how, I mean, what, what are your thoughts, first of all, on the kind of fetish theory versus sexual orientation? Right. Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think if you look at the original um, research papers from Ray Blanchard, he, it's, it was common in, in the literature literature to describe it as a paraphilic orientation okay. so i don't think they're mutually exclusive concepts and furthermore i think it is a narrow conception of human sexuality to suppose that a fetish is limited in scope or must be limited in scope such that it basically never escapes the bedroom um, i um, think human male sexuality is a very powerful thing and something I've come to appreciate um, over the years is that I think AGP has a sort of addictive quality such that the more right. you indulge in it, it sort of can take over your life. Um, and because as a uh, paraphilia, it involves sort of beliefs about yourself. It sort of uh, has an impact on identity formation such that you come to develop these beliefs you know you sort of um, become attracted to the idea of yourself as a woman and once you have that idea of yourself that sort of bleeds out into a desire to instantiate that idea in all aspects of, of, of your life and it just be kind of becomes like you know addicting you sort of like it, it, you know little dopamine hits and next thing you know you're you're cross-dressing you know, like on the weekends and then you're like cross-dressing uh, in the evenings and then it's like seven days a week and next thing you know, you want to do it all the time and then you go full-time and once you go full-time, now you you know, want to take hormones you, you, and, you, and I think this is common to like kind of always take it to the next level, which is like, um, it, it's kind of never ceasing process. It's like, okay, well, now I'm going to start hormones. Well, then I'm going to get bottom surgery well now i need facial surgery and then i need like a breast augmentation it's sort of like you sort of you know um you postpone your happiness uh via just like the continual um you know it, it just becomes like a never-ending thing and i think part of it is because it it has a sort of like uh it kind of takes over your mind like the first couple of years of my transition is like all i thought about was like trans stuff like sort of just like consumed my entire mind uh, and I was just like on reddit constantly you know, I was just like you know, and, and I became a hardcore trans activist too 
<laughs> I yeah, guess, yeah, kind of get into like, that because yeah. I, I noticed that yeah. you've been on quite the journey. But I guess, yeah, before you go on that, um, what was I going to ask you? Yeah, I, I, I guess I hear from, you know, the gender critical movement, you know, like they'll kind of make sweeping statements like there's no proof that anyone transitioning can make them happier and actually everyone feels worse. Now, particularly with the homosexual variety, you know, I hear straight from people's mouths, you know, I, I'm so happy, I have a great life. And I think the authenticity shines true for them. You know, I do believe that, that transitioning has really helped them. So with, with people with autogynophilia, do you believe that they, do you really believe that they can achieve, you know, happiness in that way? I mean, what was that like for you? Um, I mean, yeah, I was generally a well-adjusted, happy person. Like my life, like, didn't go down the tubes when I transitioned. Like, you know, I managed to have, many satisfying relationships. And I eventually met my wife who I'm still married to and in a very happy relationship with. I found a terrific career and uh, which, which I'm still in. And, um, okay. you know, so in many respects, like, you know, I had a good life and I definitely think it's possible to, you know, sort of and like kind of take AGP to the maximal conclusion and transition and like, you know, come out on the other end, generally more well-adjusted and happy um, compared to the previous version, which, which is why, you know, I, and, and this is where it gets complicated in terms of like the, the, the politics of it all in terms of like, you know, how much gatekeeping to put into the, to, to, to the transition process. Um, mm. You know, uh, and for adults, I think the pediatric transition question is a totally separate topic. And we don't yeah, even necessarily need to get into that because I know it's very controversial. Mm. But for adults, I generally lean towards, you know, um, reasonable gatekeeping with the caveat that I ultimately think that it is up to adults to make decisions for their lives based on their own conception of what is the best life for them in a liberal free society that is pluralistic because, you know, there are some value systems out there that sort of perceive the whole enterprise of transition as basically a moral depravity. <laughs> yeah, And so that's a very conservative perspective, which, yeah. you know, um, I, I'm not necessarily going to say that like, you know, I can prove that that's wrong because we're getting to morality and values and like, like how do you prove a value system? You sort of, it comes about our presuppositions and our worldviews and like what we take to be authoritative in regards to the de determination of like what makes for a good life. And for some people, it's not necessarily just do whatever you desire. For some, it's like, you know, a, a, you know, adhering to a more, you know, absolutist moral code that's defined by, you know, some conservative authority. Um, and I'm not like, I, I don't want to say like, oh, like you must be a terrible big bigot if you believe that. However, we live in a pluralistic society where there are many competing value systems out there. Yeah. Some are more liberal and he, and, and, he, and hedonistic. Some are more conservative. And so I think liberalism and allowing adults to make decisions, like we allow adults to walk down to the liquor store and potentially get themselves addicted to alcohol and destroy their lives. And that 
is not a good thing for them to do, but we allow them to do it because we live in a free society and people have free will. And I think you can just make these decisions about how your life goes. And so long as we are protecting people who can't give informed consent, because maybe they're children, um, you know, yeah. like, uh, that's, so that's sort of my, my big perspective is like, and, and I do think people can choose this for themselves and like be happier, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think that's the I mean, pertinent question. Uh, yeah. So I, I very much agree with you and, you know, I'm, I'm never here to say people should, should or should not transition except for kids, which I, I very much think they should not. But, um, I guess if I'm imagining myself to be a woman, then if it was well understood by myself that there are these different types of trans women and one is a more fetishistic nature, then I think naturally I would feel more uncomfortable sharing spaces with those than maybe the other type. And I don't say that in a judgmental way, you know, I think it's very important. I don't know if you'd agree, but to kind of raise awareness of AGP and the kind of compassion that needs to go with it, because it can be quite debilitating, I've heard. Um, but what would be your reasoning behind that? Because, you know, even though we're in this pluralistic society and, you know, it's like, it's up to you if you want to transition, but then potentially making women uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in their spaces when they're sort of aware of the intentions behind it. Right. Um, so the, this is a really tough question and I don't pretend to have the, the entire answer. I think, you know. To some extent, I don't necessarily believe that in a liberal society, we ought to outlaw the expression of this in public, in the public square, so to speak, provided that you are otherwise following decency laws. Like, are your, are your genitals covered? Are you, you know, in some respect, covering yourself up the way we expect any other adult to cover themselves up. And we have to sort of rely on implicit mechanisms of social ostracization through shame or other forms of social control to prevent the most egregious forms of this from operating in public. For example, you know, like if you're a diaper wearing age play fetishistic walking in the mall sucking on a baby bottle you know freaking children out and like maybe... i feel like you're you're referring to an actual video which i think i've seen yes i am <laughs> um, however so so there's one question like what what do we do in the public square you know just walking on the sidewalk where everyone has a right to walk in the sidewalk like but that is a totally separate question from things like single sex spaces women's prisons sports. And that is where I think the AGP mindset and my uh, experience and observation of this, they tend to have a very self-centered, narcissistic, ethical system such that they say like, well, it would make me feel bad to not get the thing that I want because I want in order to live out, you know, to maximize the instantiation of my identity as a woman, I feel like it is my prerogative. I desire to go into these female spaces and to otherwise be treated like a female, just like everyone else. Because if I am not treated like a 100% as a female as everyone else, then like that makes me feel bad. So, you know, so there's kind of two ethical questions. One is like, what do we do with the expression of this fetish um, in these sort of like, um, general common space versus like, you know, 
dealing with single sex spaces, like single sex changing rooms, like, you know, like should, you know, a fully intact male like Leah Thomas be able to walk into a single sex um, changing room and just get naked because there's a sort of like idea in gender identity theory that, you know, if you have a certain gender identity, you are more or less for all intents and purposes, like perfectly equivalent to yeah. a female. So you have every prerogative to, you know, uh, be treated legally speaking as a, you know, female, which I definitely understand why many females um, would not uh, be comfortable with that. And I think, you know, there's legitimate ethical questions as the gender critical movement has raised in regards to these mm -hmm. specific issues um, like prisons, single sex changing spaces, you know, bathrooms, et cetera. Now, now the objection, I think that um, always comes up is with, with the AGP is that, um, well, you know, most AGPs are just regular people who aren't these like, you know, <laughs> that they're not, they're not walking in, you know, with, with like a boner or anything. They're just sort of like regular people. And I think that is true for the most part in terms of the vast majority of AGPs, in my opinion, are not, you know, predatory. They're not, you know, um, you know, going to do any harm. But the sort of general ethical principle is like, in regards to safeguarding, mm. is like given that this comes out of the male population and given that, you know, there is some some statistics and facts that I've seen, I think Kathleen Stock has brought up some of these um, statistics in regards to looking at the general propensity for sexual offense crimes yeah. in the male population. And then the question is like, is there any reason, any evidence to believe that AGP trans women are significantly different relative to that baseline of propensity, even if it's a smaller percentage, like let's say most AGPs are, are not more predisposed given that they're males, like, and the thing is like, you know, given with gender identity theory, you know, you can't say that's about passing because you can't say like, oh, only if you pass 100%, you're allowed in the women's room because like for the most part, um, you know, that's hard to enforce and it's a high standard and like most yeah. trans women would not meet that standard. But it's like, if it's not about passing, what what's the bar? Like if, you know, what if you or just started your transition and you have barely had laser hair removal. So now you have like slight beard shadow and like you're kind of visibly male, but you're making a decent effort. Like how much effort do you have to put in to, you know, consider to be passable enough to not cause a commotion and like yeah. these spaces. And so that's the sort of, so the gender critical is just want to say like, no, we just want to make a general rule. If you're male, don't go in those spaces because we can't, police like who might be a predator who might not be a predator but then they'll say well there's no there's no evidence that there's like you know increased like crime relative to this um so you can't prove that this is actually like a problem well i think that's fallacious because leah thomas definitely walked into the uh the single sex female changing room fully intact and like upset those females but those females didn't report a crime but it doesn't mean they weren't bothered yeah. or harmed by that experience so you can't look at like you know the uh you know incidence of crime statistics to determine whether or not this is causing like more problems in society because the vast majority mm -hmm. of this stuff is going unreported if, if it is causing a problem at all and women are trained via 
you know, empathy right. to sort of just accept it to like, you know, oh, like I, I can't speak up because, you know, I'm going to be a bigot. My liberal friends will like think I'm a terrible person if I speak up about this, yeah. even if it makes me uncomfortable. So I think it's that's such like a the great tricky point. Part. I think this stuff must happen more than we care to know. I mean, even just, I'm not saying that this obviously happens, you know, more in AGP people, but you're right in saying any man, regardless of their identity, is of a higher risk. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter if they're trans or not in in that sense. Um, but even violence towards women by you know just cis straight men, um, a lot of those don't get reported. So who knows, like how many of these things have happened? Especially that if it is a trans woman that that's done something, it's almost more taboo because, like you said, people fear being accused of, you know, being a bigot, being discriminatory. And I think I have compassion for, for both sides, you know, but I guess it comes back to, to how I feel, how I can empathize with the gender, gender critical side is even taking, you know, violence or safeguarding issue aside. I think if someone just isn't, just isn't very comfortable with a male being in, in a space, then I also think that they have a right to feel that way, you know? Um, it doesn't mean that I don't have compassion for the right. other side. I guess I just wish that it was more socially acceptable in society for it to have a third a third space and that trans people were just very happy to use that. You know, I think it would be so much... It's obviously me not being trans, thinking of it too simplistically, right? But it feels like it could be the only option where everyone's sort of getting what they want, although you can argue the trans... AGP women just really are not what they want. Yeah, a lot of trans people would say like, "Oh, like what are you? You're you're othering me. You're like, you know, um, you're you're putting me in a third category. I don't accept that. I'm 100% a woman, and it's bigoted to say otherwise." But I think, you know, so they say like, "We're we're a marginalized group. We're being oppressed, and so therefore we want to prioritize the." The marginalized, the marginalized group. Um, so it becomes yeah. like a game of like oppression Olympics. But if we're going to consider equality in terms of like, okay, we're respecting the, you know, the beliefs of these marginalized communities. Well, there are religious communities, for example, Orthodox Jews or Muslims who they don't believe in this gender ideology stuff. So it's about your biological sex. Yeah. God made you male and female. <laughs> and so they don't believe that your identity trumps that. And they have specific Orthodox like pro prohibitions about being in a single sex space mm -hmm. with a male. So now you have the liberal progressive, you know, trans women who are saying my rights as a minority, because I have this gender identity trump that of this other marginalized community yeah. of orthodox female jews or whatever like and saying like oh well their religious beliefs to not be in a single sex space with males like um because they don't believe that you know identity can trump like a you know god-given like mm -hmm. biological category so now whose belief is true like, you know, like it's, you have competing ideological worldviews and I think you sort of, you know, yeah, I, I would totally advocate for third spaces, but I think some of the narcissism and the trans community sort of says like our concerns as a marginalized group trump every other marginalized community. Um, like our concerns are more important, uh, which is sort of like. I think it's a lack of of empathy in terms of yeah. thinking from other people's perspectives that might be impacted by this conflict of rights. Because at the bottom of it, you have a conflict of rights. 
And who gets to decide whose rights trump because you can't square the circle and make everyone happy. So you have to make up a general policy. Um, mm. And I guess, you know, taking discrimination aside, but logically to me, it feels more, yeah, it feels more logical to base a policy on objective biological reality than, you know, a subjective internal reality because there's one you can prove and one you cannot, right? But wh wh right. why do you feel that well, we have this? Sorry, go on. Uh, I, 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 I was just going to say, like, at this point, a lot of trans activists will say, like, oh, well, if you try and, like, you know, despite all this based on biological categories, do you want, like, trans men to go into the women's locker room? And, well, yeah. no, because yeah. I think we can be more precise in how we delineate policy because it is the females at risk of male violence, whereas the trans the trans man going into the male bathroom that's probably what they want to do anyway and they are um you know they are not a threat to uh males like a trans man a, fe a female with a male identity is not a threat to males whereas if it's not a symmetrical relationship such that trans men pose an equal violence risks for attacking like males versus you know the other way around so you can craft a policy that specifically protects you know female spaces um, just right. like we have protections that are sex-based like females you know need private spaces for breastfeeding well oh that's discriminatory because it's you know it, you know why don't why don't males get their own space for breastfeeding because they don't have they don't breastfeed so it's like it is okay to craft policies that are sex specific because males and females have different needs because males and females are different. Yeah. So that's what I would say. Yeah, and I would agree definitely in terms of safety. I think the only thing I'd push back on is, you know, there may be men who just simply, there are lots of men who may be embarrassed to be in the same changing room as someone they know to be a woman. I mean, I've, I live in London, so it's quite a, you know, cosmopolitan liberal society I live in. And I love that. Um, I've, I've been in some changing rooms where I've seen, um, you know, at the gym, I've seen trans men. So I've seen the top surgery scars. And to me, I don't care at all. But I mean, I could understand why some men might, might be uncomfortable or if they have a certain religion that, you know, means they can't be unclothed in front of someone, yeah. then it does, that makes sense. I know they were probably thinking of yeah, quite niche yeah. examples, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a fair point. And also, I'd be curious your thoughts on this as like, you know, a gay man in terms of like, you know, I, I've heard from some gay men that like, you know, the they, they, they sort of like have a desire to have, you know, spaces that are exclusive to males. So, for example, you know, you're not going to be at risk of getting any, anyone pregnant if it's like, you know, if it's like, um, you know, a exclusively male um, space and so I could see that as being something that would be desirous, but yeah. you know, so I don't think it's necessarily only, yeah. You know, so, so, so I think the the gender identity, um, you know, uh, I, 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 ideology, like it generalizes. So I don't think it's purely just like a female issue, um, for sure. I mean, I, like, I support trans people, and I think, um you know, given, especially if the 
the treatment processes were more robust with, you know, lots of therapy first. I think potentially you might see a, a lot less people transitioning and finding a way to be happy. But I think for those who, who, who do not achieve that, then I, you know, I very much support it. But I guess as a gay man, I know how long it took us to fight for our rights. And even I've talked about this on my channel, like, you know, from the period of 2018 to 2020, my nightlife scene kind of went from very much being like gay men, which is its own thing and it's great has its pros and cons like everything but then now everything has to be queer and it's like t it has its own aesthetic um it has its own political movement belief system it's kind of more it's a lot everything's more about gender now than it is about just being two men who have a certain sexuality so i think it would be nice if we could have both because we obviously have these scenarios in which you know people try and set up a gay only event and then they say, but this actually means just only males or only females, not just trans people. And then, you know, there was a lesbian speed uh, dating event. I don't know if you've heard of it in London that got shut down um, because of, you know, a trans identifying male wanting to be part of it. And they said no. So I think that's something that really gets my back up. And, you know, I'll support you as long as your rights don't infringe on mine. And I, I personally find it insulting if, you know, a trans man claims to be gay and to have that experience because the reality is that we don't we don't have the same experience and you know I, I don't think you're gay I think you're your own thing and I think that's there's beauty in that but I think I guess it always goes hand in hand with this people who transition some of them really do want to be seen as a hundred percent that thing otherwise it's not enough you know yeah well I think this is where gender identity theory has sort of veered off course relative to the other sort of traditional civil rights movements in regards to, you know, trying to eliminate disc discriminations based on these sort of like, you know, innate characteristics, because it's really seems particularly unique to gender identity ideology that it's not just like that you would have to treat people nice and treat them with love because I definitely would support, you know, being loving and kind and empathetic and, sh you know, showing compassion for people who are clearly suffering psychological distress um, over this, you know, condition. Because I think gender dysphoria, this sort of like, you know, wanting to harm your body based on this, the, these desires, um, you know, to, I mean, but, but like, we, you, you you have to accept their interpretation of reality. Otherwise, you're a bigot. You're transphobic. You're doing harm to them by not believing what they believe. Which is, I think, it sort of comes very Orwellian, such that even me describing that as harm is now a transphobic act of speech violence that I have committed. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, well, ask them. So right? it, it becomes. <laughs> Otherwise, they can't yeah, shut you so, down. Yeah, and so it's this sort of like cancellation culture intrinsic to this movement that I find particularly worrisome for just basic free speech, the basic prerogative to have differences of opinion about certain worldview presuppositions and this idea that the trans perspective is the one true worldview. And if you don't believe that worldview, you are a terrible person who must not have any love in their heart and you must just be a purely hateful person even though you know you can have love and empathy and compassion for someone 
while having a totally different set of axioms and presuppositions that form your worldview that influence how you see the world. But now it's like, oh, like there's this like automatic knee-jerk reaction to say, it's a thought-terminating cliche to say like, oh, well, you don't believe my worldview, so you must be a bigot. And I think that sort of way of viewing things is... um it's such a troubling precedent in an yeah. otherwise pluralistic society where you're you're, ne you're never going to have worldview alignment. Like mm -hmm. there's going to be basic presuppositions and axioms that are like fundamentally um, different, and the sort of like um, yeah. So so that's my big yeah. concern, really. Uh, I completely agree. I think some people can view some of these ideas as relatively kind of nebulous, and you know, oh, what harm does it do to say trans women are women? Full stop. Um, but the, the issue is that once, once we open our doors to believing something that is not reality, you know, it's, it's a belief, but kind of, um, the higher powers and government kind of actually fostering this belief in people, then that, that means, you know, there's nothing they can really do, you know, but you can take it further and further, um, and you can keep stretching people's beliefs and then it does become Orwellian. You know, I've seen your video examining how gender ideology mimics a cult. And, you know, that's the sort of tactics people need to use mm. when they need you to believe something that is not based in reality. Then they need to use all of these tactics of the love bombing, the, um, the cancel culture, you know, anything you say in, in opposition to this is automatically disgraceful. Um, and it's, it is worrying to me because it's several things in, society obviously by and large feel guilty about how gay and lesbian people were treated so they're being told that this this movement now is is comparable that transphobia is the same thing as homophobia the same level of you know violence although people would probably argue now that it's worse um so they're kind of blindly accepting that for the most part but it's a lot more complicated than that like one is based off just people you know having this attraction wanting to live their lives and another is based off this kind of belief that you can't prove and then i guess why i feel passionate about it as well is just how many gay kids are being harmed as a result of of, of this kind of indoctrination so it it does worry me too and i think when you're head deep in this kind of reading about it every day you know um i don't know if i'm really obsessed with this but obviously a lot of my channel is about it so i'm always listening to podcasts re reading books like it can become quite all-consuming in what the hell is happening to the world and how far is this going to go? Right. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's funny because when I was a trans activist, like, I used to think Jordan Peterson was, like, the devil, you know, terrible big, a terrible transphobe, but I think he was right on the money all those years ago when he blew up and got popular based on, like, the Canadian, you know, free speech law saying, like, it is a crime to misgender someone, basically. And and he was yeah. right on the money because his opposition was like, well, it's not that I don't want to be polite, you know. It's not, it's not that I don't want to, you know, be kind. And, like, you know, if someone's really, really suffering, if they would just have a terrible, if it would ruin their day because I don't use this pronoun for them, then, like, yeah, like... I, I'm okay with like doing that out of like politeness, but if you're going to like make it illegal, if you're going to make it a crime for me, you're going to compel my speech. It's like, if I don't say this thing, then I'm now a criminal who's like, you know, can be legally punished by the government. That's like really concerning. And like, 
So I Not think, nice. you know, it's, it's easy to focus on the specifics of the transgender movement, but I always like to bring it back full picture to larger philosophical concerns about, you know, free speech, which is like a general principle. It's not just the trans issue. It's like, this is a common tactic and, you know, wokeness broadly considered such that there's like a certain, you know, uh, intellectual lineage coming out of critical social justice theory that sort of like mandates these certain ideological worldviews as being like the correct thing to do, which just involves all sorts of, you know, um, thought control essentially saying that like, if you don't agree with this on these presuppositions, then like you are a, you know, terrible person. And, and yeah, I think that that general principle you know, uh, it, yeah, it like it generalizes beyond the trans case, but Words, I think it's so yeah. tricky because as soon as you start talking up about this stuff, um, you just get instantly rejected from polite, liberal, left of center social circles, and you just sort of get lumped in as like a terrible bigot. Oh, you, oh, you must be far right. You must be conservative. You must be this. You must be that. You must be a bigot, and so. That sort of, I think, creates a polarization such that, <laughs> you know, it, and, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to really convince people that, you know, that, that you don't, you don't truly hate trans people. Like you don't hate, like you, you, you can disagree with someone's worldview without hating them. But I think it's sort of like. We, we like no longer believe that that's possible anymore. It's like, um, if you have a difference of worldview, you. Well, I feel, I feel like everyone must think independently of themselves. There's certain things I disagree with, but I know people will perceive me to be that hateful. Um, but you know, you're right on the money. I think this is not exclusive to the trans movement. We've seen stuff like this in the past, like the Soviet Union and how do we gaslight and manipulate a whole society into believing something so that we can control you know we can really control these people now um so you know you see, you see it crop up in so many different ways but i guess what's what's very unique about this particular subject is that it's enmeshed with right. the civil rights movement yeah you know? and they'll use these this language of being on the right side of history it's a very moralistic campaign it's like this sort yeah. of using morality as a bludgeon to say that, you know, our perception of morality is the correct one, which is an assumption that they have access to the objective moral truth, which is so ironic to me because usually when you push them on morality, at the, at the, you sort of dig, dig a little deeper, they're sort of very much like relativist about about everything else when it comes to morality. It's like, oh, there is no objective moral truth because we're like, you know, postmodern and it's all just, we're just projecting, we're, we're, we're projecting meaning <laughs> on a meaningless universe and we're just like living yeah. our truth and you can't say my truth is worse than your truth. So it comes down to relativism, but they say like, if you disagree with me on this topic, then you must be a terrible bigot and you're on the wrong side of moral history, even though there is no ultimate moral truth. <laughs> it's like, it's a sort of like deeply contradictory. Well, yeah. all, all of it contradicts itself. It's, it's the same with the whole social justice movement in that, you know, gender is socially constructed, but then all the things that we um, try and 
you know, uh, spread around society is based on sex stereotypes. And we see it the same with, with racism, you know, uh, white privilege, microaggressions, putting people in all these different boxes is supposed to be um, making us more colorblind as a society. But instead, it's just separating us more and leaving white people walking on eggshells, you know, terrified of saying the wrong thing. And we are all afraid to be branded as these things. You know, since I started my channel, I've had large groups of people actually cut me out of their lives. And it's it was sort of expected. God knows why I'm doing this, because I've always just been a risk taker. And um, when I see something isn't right and unjust and, you know, for some reason, I feel like I have to talk about it. So I'm not going to stop, but you have to kind of accept that these things will happen. And I just think the more we can learn as society that even if a group is marginalized and minority, we can still question things they say and ways that they tell us um, I'm oppressed, I'm a minority, which may be true. Therefore, this is how I need to be treated. I think we should still be able to push back on some of these ideas. Yeah, no, you know? I, I, I agree. It's a, it's a one thing to recognize genuine prejudice that comes out of actual animosity towards a person, sort of the dehumanization of like, you know, you are vermin, you are scum, you don't deserve, you know, basic human rights that are afforded to other rights in a liberal democratic society. That That's one thing. We can recognize those historical injustices like done in terms of that genuine prejudice that does exist. And I do want to say that there are plenty of people in these sort of like anti-trans, anti- or gender-critical movement who generally do seem to have a lot of mean-spiritedness in their heart who sort of like spend their time sort of like, you know, yeah, just really not talking about ideas, but like attacking people, sort of not showing love, I think. And so it, I think it's really something that I would want to embody in my own sort of like uh, discussions about this is I, I hope it you know, that I, uh, that I'm showing kindness to people, even if I disagree with their worldviews, but that is such a different conception of like how discrimination and prejudice plays out in society historically versus the sort of move we see in the critical social justice theories, which is a totalizing narrative such that there's these like abstract forces of, you know, transphobia or white supremacy or patriarchy and there's these like or you know you know there's just like broad totalizing narratives that sort of impose like this like you, you can never opt out of it. it doesn't matter how nice you are how loving you are it doesn't matter if you've never committed a single act of discrimination or prejudice in your life, you are just as bad as the KKK. You are just as bad as like the the, the neo Nazis. Like yeah. you can't opt out of your, you know, um, of, of these things. So you're 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 just like a fascist no matter what. You can never not be a fascist if you disagree with them on this stuff because it's a totalizing narrative. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like there's no scale. It's like you can compare um, having dreadlocks to attacking a black person like those two things are sort of they'll be labeled as the same thing and it's so many people have bought into this i mean someone someone said to me recently i basically said that the concept of homophobia transphobia racism has become so broad they've lost all meaning we really need to keep it exclusive to just like you said um 
situations where there is a genuine animosity and, you know, infringement on these people's rights or cause of harm, you know, all of that and stuff. But this person said, um, but no, uh, racism is so much broader than that. And I'm white. So if someone tells me something is racist, then, you know, it must be. And I'm like, what yeah. kind of, what kind of world are we, how can you ever like have a belief where someone, someone of a certain type can just tell you something is true and you're just going to blindly accept? I mean, like, do we not see, how do people not see the issues with that? Just staring them in the face. Right. I mean, that's one of the basic principles of, um, you know, how this sort of like woke critical social justice works is like only trans people can define transphobia. And if you're cis, then like you don't yeah. get to define transphobia. So now it's like a anyone can say just like the tiniest little things are, you know, like actual hate speech. So um, the, the, the example I always like to use is like, it is considered deeply transphobic to, if you're typing out the word trans woman, if you don't put a space between trans and woman, you're like a terrible trans yes. <laughs> It's just like yeah. the little things like that. And it's like, or, you know, um, and once we sort of lose grip on objectivity in regards to defining, you know, how we ought to operate in a democratic pluralistic society based on like these general principles of treating people fairly, treating people out of love. Um, but they sort of like redefine what it means to hate someone based on things that ordinarily, <laughs> you know, would, would not sort of impose harm. It's like it's not, now, now speech becomes harm. Like the mere fact, if someone has like, Zizir pronouns and you don't use Zizir pronouns, you're literally committing hate speech, which is an act of violence. And they always yeah. say like, well, you're, you're increasing the likelihood of suicide or something. So, you know, therefore that's like, you know, th this hate speech is causing a rise of mental, you know, uh, illness or something. And <laughs> it's like, it's using, it's, yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole concept that the whole concept that we have to be responsible for other people's mental right. health in that way, you know, doesn't make any sense either. And it, it is insane to me, someone, you know, I'm 29, so it's not like I'm ancient, like, you know, and it, it was only 10 years ago, I was still a teenager and suffering actual homophobia. And now it's like, how have we got here so fast? But um, I know we've been talking for a long time, right? But uh, it's a couple of things I'd still really like to know. Um, obviously, you ended up detransitioning, and I can only imagine that being led to transition, something kind of consumes your life so much you need to do it. So how are you in a place now where you're able to be happy in your, you know, natal sex? And what would have helped you back then to kind of help you manage it? Like, would that have been possible back then for you? Um, so in terms of being happy with my natal sex, I think it's, it comes down to this idea of like integrity such that I sort of feel much more holistic and the total conception of who I am. There's not like this duality between like who I want to be and how I present. So, you know, and when I was tr trans identified, there's, you know, I, I didn't pass like a hundred percent. Um, and so, you know, I, I would kind of live in this ambiguous state where, you know, I, I might get gendered female before I open my mouth. So I'm kind of like always worrying, like, how are people perceiving me? How, how are people, you know, uh, understanding me? Like, 
do I have to like keep my guard up or whatever? And it's sort of like this hyper self-consciousness such that I'm always, you know, I was worried about being misgendered and like, you know, if I did get misgendered, misgendered, like, um, you know, it sort of caused a lot of like self-induced neuroticism and anxiety based on this like idea to pass. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of like, you know, mellowed out eventually, but it was kind of like an, like an overwhelming background anxiety that was kind of there and like humming in the background at all times is sort of like fear of like how I'm being perceived in terms of, you know, causing the stress. Whereas now detransition, like one of the main motivators besides a bunch of health problems I had from, from the hormones, which, you know, I can talk about that, but now this sort of this integration in terms of like, I don't have to be anything other than who I am. And there's a sort of integrity between my whole range of expression. I don't have to keep my voice register at this like artificially pitched thing. I can kind of have my full range of expression. I can sort of like, you know, th there's so many aspects in terms of like being embodied in my male self and accepting myself and developing a positive conception of a man and masculinity. And I think that's what would have helped, um, in addition to just learning about AGP back then and like, you know, truly understanding what, what is the cause of these feelings? What is the cause of these desires? Whereas now I have a much more healthy understanding of like where it all comes from and I'm able to contextualize it. Um, and, you know, re re recognizing that now with a different moral conception, I, I sort of have a new understanding such that just because I have these desires doesn't mean it's necessarily good for me to like, and in, 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 like indulge in them because, you know, right. after I detransitioned, I was, um, you know, sort of, I still had this sort of these AGP desires or just kind of do it like around the house or whatever. But I, I ended up realizing that it was causing like a conflict in my marriage that, you know, sort of like splitting my libidinal energies between like my wife and like this, you know, this still like AGP. And now that the, the, the testosterone was back, it's sort of like all that, that same stuff was coming back in terms of like the, the, the fetishistic, like a, a, addictive indulgence. And so I sort of eventually realized that it, it is okay to repress like a desire. It, it, it is not always going to psychologically be unhealthy to repress a desire if it otherwise if it's like causing you to not live up to your otherwise obligations to for me in my case like maximize the goodness of like my you know relationship with my wife and so i you know I, I've been, I i first tried to kind of integrate my agp stuff into my male identity whereas now i'm just like just sort of not doing that. And like, it is possible to, to like, to not give in. Give in so like, it. does it cause you distress to sort of the way? Um, no, no, it doesn't cause me distress because the, the goodness of like, I've realized that it is okay, like, there's a sort of benefit to self-sacrificing that desire to give into that in order to maximize my obligations to do what's right yeah. for my relationship because I realized that the more I indulged in the AGP, the less satisfying my sex life was with my wife because like, like 
it's just like it can't compete with AGP because it's so hyper sexualized, it's so hyper fetishistic that it was sort of like yeah causing an unhealthy like sexual addiction essentially i was like enslaved to this basically so mm. like learning that like i can actually yeah. you know like i don't have to do that um and i think if i had been aware that it's possible to have these desi these desires and not necessarily give in to them and that that's not going to cause me to be this terribly repressed person who's struggling all the time because, you know, I think there's this idea that, oh, if you have, you know, these sexual desires that it's always, <laughs> like, you must, like, you know, um, of the mouth, so. Um, yeah. <clears throat> because I guess w w when you first described it, it almost sounds reminiscent of you know, a gay person having to repress the fact they're gay in order to live a successful life, like a conversion therapy type thing. But then I actually hear a lot of what you're saying mirrored in the gay community in terms of it's rare now to find two men who are in a monogamous relationship. And I am, and I'm very happy. I've been in it four years. And it's just like you said, there's a level of commitment to that. And there's a level of sacrifice you have to accept in order to have this great experience. But I've seen so many men that are not able to even attempt giving that up because they need to be having sex all the time. And, you know, some of them, it, be it becomes debilitating in terms of getting into the chem sex right. kind of environment and, um, you know, like an addictive thing. So it's, I can really yeah. see the similarities yeah. there, you know, and it's not, it's not like it for you to, for you to sacrifice this thing for the sake of your marriage doesn't mean you're miserable, right. but it means that you're getting something pure and that's something right. And great. it's not just AGP itself. It's not, because that's a sort of, it's it's also, you know, masturbation and pornography, which is having a negative impact on my, the, the goodness of what I was able to give to my wife. So giving up on those things, like, like, and I think in, in some respects in, in our culture, there's this like idea that like, oh, well, if you have that desire, it must be good to do it because you're not hurting anyone. Well, it's like, no, I was hurting my wife because, you know, like the more I, you know, masturbated and like looked at pornography, the more addictive that became and like the less that took away from what I was able to give to my wife. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think, you know, these sorts of conversations are not popular in our, in our culture because there's this sort of like, um, I think there's a sort of basic assumption of, of like, of like, of like heat, that like, of like hedonism where like hedonistic self-centered pleasure is like always an absolute moral good. And like any restriction on that hedonistic self-pleasure in order to sacrifice for a, you know, a committed relationship is, you know, bad. So, you know, they'll say like, well, yeah, you know, if it comes natural to me to want to masturbate, so therefore it must be good. Even if like that's causing me it's detracting from my my marriage um people will hear this and say like, oh you're just a prude you, you you're, you're you're just repressed you're just repressing you know and it's like that's that's okay i can think that you know but it, you know, it's working for me and i'm feeling a lot more integrated and you know positive than i was when i was sort of struggling with this duality of like you know trying to have a secretive agp masturbatory life like that was sort of like done in privacy and then also trying to, you know, 
have a heterosexual marriage with my wife that was, you know, maximizing, you know, you know, my ability to give to her, like, um, the, the, the full commitment of like, you know, so, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I like totally recognize that this is not a popular thing to talk about. (laughs) Like people, I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. And, uh, well, I think, I think any man can relate to the concept of having to make these sacrifices, you know, if they want a successful marriage, it's just, it just is what it is, especially if a marriage moves, you know, decades in and, you know, there's not as much lust there, then there needs to be a level of sacrifice. And, you know, it's, it's something that really breaks my heart. It's just these stories of trans widows who have to go through this, like, very traumatic experience of their once husbands now identifying as women. And it's all about the husband. It's all about the trans woman, you know, it's all about them. Yeah. It's like, you're so brave. It, it must be so crippling and difficult for these women. Um, so I have one more question, right? Kind of on the topic of being a hardcore trans activist, because I think what's very interesting about your story is that, you know, if I'm right, only kind of this time a year ago, you were still in that frame of mind. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Um, to now being a detransitioner, yep. and then mm-hmm. you've also, I, I think, <laughs> got back in touch with your Christianity. So, yes. what what broke you out of the of the trans? You know, would you say you were a hardcore trans activist, like believing in all of the all of these truths? <laughs> um, I mean, I was pretty deep into it. I I like always sort of marched to the beat of my own drama to some extent, so I didn't buy into the full-blown discourse in every respect. I was kind of skeptical of, you know, some aspects of gender identity theory, but, you know, I thought it was like anathema to, you know, positively seek out, you know, opinions that were counter to the prevailing narrative out of fear of being ostracized and canceled and considered a bigot. Like, I sort of programmed myself to this idea that I have, I have a moral obligation to stay in my echo chamber and if I start right. going to look at gender critical stuff with, with an open mind, because that's the thing, like I never had an open mind until my wife started doing research into this on her own. And then I started actually listening to gender critical content with an open mind, whereas like, previously I was always listening to it with an strong ideological confirmation bias of like i know it must be wrong so i'm gonna like not listen to it with an open mind and once i started like yeah allowing myself to just like listen to what people are saying um you know it and i started listening to detransition narratives and i sort of like like saw that yeah like you can detransition and like not live a terrible life of regret and it's not always about regret sometimes it's just like um you know a new development on your life journey um and that's kind of how i initially conceptualized it in terms of like oh i'm just like you know going on another gender journey but you know <laughs> towards like yeah the like back to my male self but but now i you know i really developed a positive conception of myself as a male and like embrace like that it is a good thing to it's not it's not a bad thing to be male or to be a man or it's like i kind of I'd always kind of bought into that, that I kind of like, oh, masculinity is toxic and it's like terrible. And like, you should be like ashamed of being a man, especially like a white, you know, straight man. Like, um, yeah, something I used and then to once I started, yeah. And then w- once I started questioning these beliefs, like, you know, a lot of my other beliefs that were correlated with this, um, sort of, you know, started like, it all started unraveling and I've gone through 
a lot of worldview re reconfigurations, you know, <laughs> in very short order. Um, and that's still going on. I'm still exploring things, but uh, you don't mind me saying it. It might be easy for someone to assume that maybe you have a proclivity towards kind of buying quite deeply into an ideology because I've never seen someone go from from one post to the next. I completely respect it. You know, I'm not I'm not to, I'm not here to invalidate anything. But what what are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, people say like, oh, you were you were in one ideology, now you're in another ideology. P particularly with like the Christianity stuff, people, you know, sort of say you went from one cult to another cult. You know, it's like, and <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Like, um, p p people are welcome to that belief, and I'm happy to like talk about it. But you know, I think ultimately, I think the the proof positive of that belief system is like how it manifests in the transformation of my own life to make me a better man, better husband, better person, and like more loving. And if like this belief yeah. system, you know, sort of contradicts that desire to be more Christ-like and how I, you know, in interact with the world, then I would say they have every right to criticize me for that belief system. And I think that, you know, it's absolutely, you know, but, people's prerogative to be skeptical of, 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 of Christianity given the, you know, historical harms that it's done. Um, but mm. at, at, at the same time, you know, I pursue truth where I see it. Um, and I think changing your mind is a good thing. Um, so long as you're doing so based on Agreed. the following the evidence where it leads to you. And I think there's sort of a prevailing narrative that you couldn't possibly have any rational or evidential reason for believing in you know, Christianity. So, um, which I, I yeah. don't think that's true. I think it has, can be rationally defended, but, um, yeah. but yeah, well, I mean, this, this is another one of those things that's not like, um, it's not like cool or popular to talk about, like, kind of, you know, well, we're not here to, be, I, I'm not cool or popular. So <laughs> here, here, here's the right forum for it. Um, and I guess I, I just, I mean, as kind of more of a libertarian mindset, I just think it doesn't matter what you believe in, if it helps you, it's great. And if it doesn't harm people, it's the most important part. If it doesn't harm yourself or harm other people, then I don't see an issue with it at all, you know? Um, and just being free to believe what we want to believe is, is important without that from happening. Um, I guess right. my last question is because your story is so interesting you know, you've sort of been enlightened in this sense, coming out of the gender cults to an extent, you know, detransitioning yourself. <laughs> what advice could you give to someone who has, you know, a loved one who's not even trans, but is so heavily kind of in this belief system and trying to help them consider the other side? Because I can really see what you mean playing out in people I know in that they are actively avoiding even talking to me because it would mean that they have to now argue against these points and i believe that it's whether conscious or not it's a tactic that we need to follow in order to stay in like you said this echo chamber so do you have any advice for anyone who would you know really like a friend to just you know give them give them their ear so i really like the sports topic because i think it is the clearest way to get reality to interject and contradict this belief system because I think a lot of people have a pretty basic natural intuition that when it comes to sports, that males and females are objectively, biologically, physiologically different and that no amount of ideological mental gymnastics can change that. And so um, 
I like to use the sports topic just because it's kind of like a wedge. It kind of puts a crack in the um, totalitarianism of the gender identity theory that sort of like questions, you know, it, 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 it sort of allows you to reground yourself in objective reality. Um, and so I like to use the sports example to, uh, that's yeah. why I've, I spent so much time on my channel really diving into the science and trying to like, really establish like objectivity because I think what's missing in our culture, broadly speaking, not just in the um, gender issue, but like there's a lack of appreciation for objectivity and there's a there's a sort of complacency to let postmodernism get away with the villainization of objectivity as being a product of white supremacy or something like oh like you only believe in objective truth because you're like a bigot <laughs> you know no we need to fight it that very hard reality and is like um and I think the sports issue is the best way to do that. So just, just yeah. you know, challenge people's in, in, in intuitions. And once they get that, I think that just puts a seed in their mind that, like, because there are some identity theories, the, these agen gender identity theories out there who are making really absurd claims about the sports issue that I think violate a lot of, you know, good liberal progressive people who don't want to be considered transphobes and they might not be wanting to speak about this, but they might be like, oh, it's gone a little too far and that will kind of get their mind going about like, okay, well. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for me, it was very much once that first domino fell, then I couldn't go back. But then I'm also the type of person that I didn't resist it. I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And then I was like, okay, wow, because I have my own story of why I bought into it all, which I will speak about. But listen, um, such a stimulating, incredible conversation, fascinating your whole story, and thank you for sharing it so openly. Um, so yeah, thanks for being on my podcast. How can people find you? How can they check out, see more of you? So I'm on Twitter and YouTube, Ray Alex Williams. If you search that, that's my user handle on both platforms. So Ray Alex Williams. And yeah, and this is fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Ray. Hope you have a great Sunday.